be very careful what you ask for, because you just might receive it. There's been a few times in my life where I've begged God, oh man, wouldn't it be great if I could be a part of this relationship? Or hey, man, that job opportunity looks fantastic. God, if you could just deliver, I'm begging, can you listen, just hand it off, that'd be great, that'd be wonderful. But to be honest, with a little bit of hindsight, a little bit of time, I look back and I say, oh, thank you, God, for not allowing me to be a part of that dumpster fire. There's, there's just times in our lives where we look at it and say, oh, okay, I get it, that's cool. Um, it reminds me of a time in God's family's past where they were just so passionate about trying to receive an earthly king. God's family, Israel, was begging God, 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 can you please give us, give us an earthly king, man, so that we have somebody that could lead us into battle and win victories for you. And God's like, man, I, I'm, I'm your king. And they're like, oh, that's great. No, I get it, I get it. But hey, uh, our neighbors, they've got an earthly king, all these other nations, and it's totally working out well for them. And it really wasn't. And God's like, no, really, you, 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 don't, you don't want that. You don't want to be under the oppression of, of man. You want to have me to worship and to rule you. And they're like, no, no, please, 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 just give us an earthly king. And, and I can imagine God just finally, okay, here you go. And for years, decades, or hundreds of years, God's family was ruled over by an earthly king. And if you can imagine, there is no good king. There are some good-ish kings. There are some horrible, terrible, ridiculous kings. But basically, Israelites found out that when being ruled under a king, they were going to regret begging and asking for God. So we are going to be taking a look at this morning just a quick picture of how it goes wrong. One of those kings named King Ahab, and I'm telling you, he was a guy, he was a king that was not a good man. And I'm not saying his policies weren't great. What I'm saying is basically if God commanded Ahab to do something, Ahab said, no, I'll go the other direction. Matter of fact, it seemed like Ahab took very much pleasure in saying, oh, these are God's ways? I'm going the exact opposite. This is a guy that loved child sacrifice. Let's just put it bluntly. He was not a godly king. And so God felt the desire to say, listen, because of this bad influence of this earthly king, he, he invited other nations and other idols and gods and all these quote-unquote deities that, that are really just nothing to uh, infiltrate God's family. And so now there's idolatry in the camp. And so God says, you know what? I need to do something. And I'm going to do something in a mighty, mighty way. And so he asks his servant. He commands Elijah. Elijah, here's what I want you to do. We're going to have a God off. We're going to have a contest. I think this is going to be a good time. Let's get everybody on Mount Carmel. Oh, Mount Carmel. Anybody else hope there's an actual mountain of Carmel in heaven? <laughs> I'm not saying I'll be disappointed, but still. Anyway, so he's like, all right, so we're going to have this God off. How about, Elijah, you go uh, to the Baal worshipers. You go to all these different uh, uh, priests and priestesses and prophets uh, of these idols, and how about you invite them to the top of this mountain, and we're going to give them a chance to let their God shine through. And then I'll have a turn. And so that's what Elijah does. He walks up to the, uh, the people of Baal and says, hey, this is what God's commanded me to do. Let's do it. And they're like, we're all in. Let's get it done. Let's have this God off. So they find themselves on Mount Carmel, and the worshipers of Baal. Uh, now, Baal was the God of uh, thunder and lightning. 
Okay? So we are expecting, the people there on Mount Carmel are expecting noise, at least. I don't know, maybe it's a Michael Bay explosion, a big summer movie, whatever it is. But people were expecting something huge. And so they started chanting and singing, and hours and hours and hours uh, kept going. And there was nothing. There was silence. And so I love Elijah. Elijah pokes the bear. He's like, hey, 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 well, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, your God's taking a nap. Maybe you should go louder. Maybe Sing, scream, dance, whatever you need to do. And they do for hours and hours and hours. And then he pokes the bear again after silence. He's like, hey, maybe, you're be- uh, maybe your God's on the bathroom. Maybe he's on the toilet, just hanging out. Maybe he doesn't hear you. I love Elijah. This is great. This is a man who is arrogant because he knows what God's going to do. He has been commanded by God, believes that God's going to come through. And so I can see him kind of poking the bear like, hey, what's going on? These people, these Baal worshipers, um, come to such... Uh, disarray and frustration because nothing, there's nothing but silence, nothing's happening. And so they start, they start flaying their skin off, they start bleeding out, people are starting to die. I mean, it is insane what they're trying to do to get their God to pay attention and react. And Elijah finally says, okay, you had your turn. Now it's my God's turn. And this is where we pick up in 1 Kings 18, 30 through 39. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which has been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, who in the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to him, fill four jars with water, pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. I love this. Guys, backyard barbecues, wonderful time. You gather friends. There's going to be barbecue. The smells, the, uh, the taste, it's going to be fantastic. Anybody who have been to a backyard barbecue where somebody sets up the fire, gets whatever protein you like, sticks it on the fire, and is like, all right, let's just start dousing it with water, right? Those are the neighbors you don't hang out with anymore. Those are the people you say... Uh, not for me, maybe somebody else, right? But he is so confident. He is so confident because God has commanded Elijah. Elijah says, listen, I want you to make sure, everybody on Mount Carmel, I want you to make sure that this isn't some human trick. I don't want you to think like, oh, there was, there was dry kindling and it just kind of caught on fire on accident, something like that, right? No, he's like, pour some water on it. Pour a whole lot of water on it. Pour so much water on it, it's ridiculous. He was setting the stage For God to move and act and change lives. And here's where we continue reading. 36. At the time of the sacrifice, Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And I am your servant and have done all the things uh, at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people that uh, would know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord, uh, then the fire of the Lord uh, fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also looked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. God, I love how Elijah in his prayer, again, takes no credit and says, this isn't a magic trick. This isn't me. This is me just being obedient to the Father. There is one God, one true 
God. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Uh, like uh, Tim, that guy said, uh, like Tim said, that uh, we're going through this hills we die on. The idea that there are principles in our faith that we have concrete feet, that we're not moving around. Like, it's, there's lots of gray area in Scripture that we can debate and be friends and disagree as adults. It's awesome. But there are some things that you and I would look at and say, you know what? I'm standing firm right here on Scripture. The first one last week was Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose. We have concrete feet in Jesus Christ. There are lots of conversations around it, but we know there is only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. And today we are talking about we believe in one true God. And that's, those are concrete feet. We're not going to adjust that. We're not going to look around and say, well, yeah, he's God. He's a God. He's a path. But as followers of Christ in here, if you're new, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Way to be brave and do something a little crazy. If you're online, maybe in Pennsylvania, it's nice to have you. Um, listen, we've got concrete feet when it comes to one God. And what Elijah was combating was idolatry. So idolatry is um, anytime we worship something over one true God, we practice idolatry. Now, you might be uh, like me and wonder, okay, this is an amazing Old Testament story that happened thousands of years ago in God's family. Seriously, John, it's 2017. I'm not into child sacrifice. Why are we talking about this? I get it, right? It's 2017. We probably, the vast majority of us in here, don't have some kind of an idol, a, a statue, a bronze or, or, or metal concrete, whatever in our house that we bow down to. Probably most of us are in that uh, situation, but I am going to say that idolatry is a massive problem in my life. I feel in the church's life, and I very much feel in our culture that idolatry has become a cultural norm. But it applies to us in many ways, even if we don't want to admit it. Uh, there is an author, Kyle Eidemann. Um, Kyle is a, uh, the preaching either on the preaching team or the preaching guy at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Don't say Louisville or your loose friends. Or Louisville. Louisville, Louis, I don't know. Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, fourth, fifth biggest church in North America. Um, and he wrote, great author, he wrote uh, a book, Gods at War. And I'm going to be very honest with you. As an ADHD person, I have read some of this book. <laughs> Every book in my office, I've read some of. Have I ever finished a book? Yes, once. It was an accident, and I apologize. But seriously, this is a fantastic read. I'm not going to promise and be like, oh, I'm totally going to finish it. But I would encourage you, if idolatry is something that you want to look into, if this uh, message, if, if this conversation perks your interest, I would encourage you to look into this. I'm going to do, for the next just few minutes, a brief overview of his main points, because I feel like they kind of destroyed my heart, and so I'm hoping... They would help with yours as well. Ken says that idolatry isn't, they said call him Ken, Kyle, my bad. Ken, Kyle, if he's watching online stream, I apologize. Um, he says that idolatry isn't an issue. He says idolatry is the issue for us. Again, anytime we worship something over one true God, we practice Idolatry. So there are three things, three major categories that Kyle would say from his book, Gods at War, that sometimes you and I kind of set up temples, create kings to lead us instead of following the one true God. The first one is sometimes we create a king out of pleasure. In our culture, boredom is the enemy. All right, guys, let's be real honest. When you're at a stoplight, what are you doing? 
You're on your phone because I drive around Bloomington, everybody's on their phone. Okay? Listen, we can't even be bothered at a stoplight not to be like, what? Nice text. That's great. Listen, I get it. Texting and driving, dangerous. Being on your phone at a stoplight, probably not the worst thing. But we are so conditioned in our culture that if we are bored, that's wrong. We can't be bored. We have to have things around us. The entertainment industry is alive and well. And listen, I, I, I'm literally a person sitting here not looking at you saying you need to fix this. This is more like counseling for me. I look at something that's really jacked up in my life, and I try to work through it while a thousand people look at me on the couch. It's kind of weird, but it happens. But I'm working through this as well. I make entertainment, I make pleasure an idol. I say I can't have boredom in my life. We think that we have the right to indulge in food. Sex and entertainment. I said sex. You okay? These are all fine things. Food, sex, and entertainment is fine. But to be very honest, we are automatically think we have the right to just jump headfirst into all these things. And we say, God, you're really important, but I'm never going to be bored. And I've got to have a great entertainment life. And I have to be 100% happy all of the time. And so he says sometimes we create uh, temples out of pleasure. The next one is sometimes we create a king out of power. We uh, want this temple, this idol that we can come to and say, you know what? Success, money, and achievement, that's for me. I get it. Growing up, I understand the value of hard work. We need to produce, to support, to love. I get it. I, I, I get it. But unfortunately, I think myself and some of us have perverted this idea of work. Where instead of doing the best we can to serve the people we love and create a decent income, we have said, you know what, 40 hours isn't enough, 50 hours is enough, 60 hours is enough, two cars, three cars, five boats, whatever it is. We've looked at money, success, and achievement as an illusion of freedom. In American culture, if we have more, we can do more. We can get away from the people we don't like. We can take vacations with the people we do like. We can retire earlier. So we say, God, you're important but just not in charge of my bank. You're not in charge of my future financially. So he says that sometimes we create altars out of power. And the last one really kind of damages my heart because this one is near and dear to me. We create a king out of love. We create a temple out of love. Love can be described as the ultimate narcotic. Have you ever heard of lovesick? Have you ever been infatuated? I have had the opportunity to be in student ministry for a very long time, and I've known amazing teenage young men and women who are intelligent, mature, making great strides. I mean, trajectory like no else, nothing else. And then they start making ridiculous choices like they're five-year-olds. And you come to find out there's a boy. And everything turns upside down. Or for a guy, sometimes there's even just the potential of a girl. And they're like, what? Changing my life. Making all these crazy decisions, right? Love is a narcotic. Love is a drug. And so we chase after this. We say, God, thank you for loving me. That's a warm and fuzzy blanket. But to be honest, my family's more important than you. My kids are more important than you. My spouse is more important than you. I'm more important than you, God. I create this idol and say, you know what? I love me. And God, you're a big deal, but I need something on the side. And that's what idolatry really is. When we boil it down, idolatry is just diminishing God and creating self. It's just worshiping self. God longs for his family to worship 
and follow him. Now, these idols that we've talked, uh, that we, put, we, we place importance into, uh, offer nothing but empty promises. All of these things that we've talked about, uh, sex, money, success, romance, family, uh, all these things are just kind of an endless circle that will never complete. But God calls us and says, I want you, I want your fullness, I want you to be in my family. Here's a crazy uh, quote from Oz Guinness. Idolatry is huge in the Bible, dominant in our personal lives, and irrelevant in our mistaken estimations. Let me say it again. Idolatry is huge in the Bible, dominant in our personal lives, and irrelevant in our mistaken estimations. When we live like there's one true God, idols will kind of just disappear. But when we get in a place where we're mistaken and we look at God and say, I just need a little extra, we don't even estimate the idols in our lives well. So let's go back to Mount Carmel and see how this might apply to us, okay? God's people were convinced they needed more other powers to gain protection, wealth, and happiness, to partner with other nations and God. Again, God's people said, God, you're a big deal, but you're not enough for me. I kind of need that side, God. I need something else to complete me. And so basically, they looked at God and said, I need more. You're not enough. Because of these desires, they justified diminishing God and elevating self. Uh, we can take a few things away from the account on Elijah, uh, the account of Elijah on Mount Carmel. There's, a, there's one that, that brings a lot of happiness, and there's one that scares me. The first one is happiness. Uh, God is willing to chase after his kids, even his kids that make poor choices. I love this. Man, when I sit back and think of my life, my story, the, the things that I've been through, the decisions, the words that have come, that have brought damage to other people, I am so thankful God chases after kids that make poor decisions. He didn't have to bring those people on Mount Carmel. He did not have to look at his family and say, I know you've been cheating on me for years, for decades, for hundreds of years. I know that you've been completely somebody else's and your heart isn't even mine. But you're my family, you're my kids, and I'm chasing after you, and I love you. That is fantastic. If you walk out of this room today with nothing else, know that no matter where you've been, what you're doing, or your trajectory, God will chase after you. But the second thing we learn from the top of Mount uh, Carmel is he is jealous of his family and he cannot stand it when we cheat on him. We need to be very careful. We need to be very honest with our lives and say, listen, how do we say God is a big deal, but I need more? How do we elevate passions and loves and romance, and all these things, food, for crying out loud, how do we say, listen, that's important too, and to be honest, God, you're a Sunday morning great thing, but, and it's Wednesday, and I need to do what I need to do. Now, Exodus 20, verse 3, we're going to walk through the first two of the Ten Commandments. I love this. As you, you can tell that God is trying to speak to males here. He just boils it down into just ten things. Like, it's the same amount of fingers you have on your hand. So guys, it's like real easy for us, right? So the first one is like if you had to boil down this whole life, he says you should have no other gods before me. That our relationship with God is so important, anything else is secondary. Anything else. Passions, what we think is right and wrong, family, money. He says you will have no other gods before me. The relationship you have with me is number one. Worship was designed for him, not for the things we tend to create 
to worship. Now, uh, I forget who said this, but I'm going to steal it from them. This is basically called secular idolatry. A secular idolatry is when we set something up other than God as our focus in life. These could be good things, these could be bad things, but basically what we're saying is the deity, the one God that we love and cherish, we say, that's fine, you're over here on Sunday, and I'll take care of this. So we find meaning in wealth, security, fame, lust, family, achievements. Again, all these things can be very positive, but what we say is, God, I need something else. Now, some of these things might even be passion projects that you and I would look at and say, those are honorable. But we elevate above God. Environmentalism, the political process, human rights. These are all fantastic things to get behind. Fantastic things to champion. But I've seen so many of my friends get so involved in whatever particular passion that is positive, they literally leave God right behind them and say, you know what? Yeah, if he doesn't agree with me on this one, I'm forging ahead. The second commandment is Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below, beneath or in the waters below. So basically, one God and don't twist God's likeness around what you hope for. Now, some of you might remember a story about a golden calf. So Moses is on uh, Mount Sinai, um, and the rest of the Israelites just kind of came out of Egypt, and I I can't imagine what they've seen. It it must have been just mind-boggling, right? See how God would move and groove in that situation. So Moses is on Mount Sinai, and it takes a couple days, and then it takes a couple weeks, and he's up there quite a long time. The people uh, at the valley are looking around saying, hey, Whoa, what's going on? Is he ever coming back? Maybe Moses is dead. Maybe he will come back. I don't know. But all these people are, are kind of losing focus, and we're all kind of just chilling out here. I think we have a great idea. Let's create something that we can remember God for. Let's create, I don't know, let's get some gold. Let's shape it into whatever it is. Who cares if it's a calf, a bull, a duck, a goose, a salamander? Who cares? And what we can do is we can worship the idea of God through this man-made idol. This would, be call, uh, this would be referred to as sacred idolatry. Taking something uh, like doctrine, uh, taking uh, uh, doctrine or religious traditions that look like worshiping God, but again, kind of twisting them with our own pleasure, with our own, I don't know, uh, desires for it, okay? So is gold bad? No. Are calves bad? No. But what God is saying is don't even bother because you will end worshiping the Father and start worshiping the creation. Now, this is difficult. I've been a Christian for about 20 years, and I've seen a lot of churches go through some pain. Um, I've seen church splits. I've had buddies in congregations that, that literally just crumble because something sacred, something valuable in our religious community is put on such a pedestal that God has placed down. Organs, color of carpet, worship style, American flags on or off stage, um, acapella or uh, instrumental. I have seen people take their passion and say, God is big, but if you play the guitar, I'm never going to speak to you again. God is big, but if it's not the right worship leader or the right preacher, I'm out. Sometimes we can take the sacred and make them idols. We can take this amazing community that we're all trying to love Jesus and love others and say, nah, if you don't adhere to what I believe, what I prefer, the gray areas, 
We're, not, we're just not even going to hang out anymore. So we've got to be careful of that. I feel like uh, the secular idolatry and sacred idolatry is a common thing in our culture. It is in my life sometimes. Now, Scripture tells us that no one is above the temptation to sin. We're all in this boat. So what do we do? If there is one true God, but we struggle with creating these idols, creating these side gods, what do we do about it? Wherever we find ourselves and the spectrum of big-time idolatry or just kind of dipping our toes, we need to understand, first and foremost, God cannot stand it. So wherever you are in justification, oh, it's not that big of a deal, it's totally fine. If it is an idol, if it takes up time, if it takes up the priority of God, God cannot stand that. So you and I need to be very careful and say, well, I'm not killing kids for another God, that's cool, so I guess I'm in, right? God cannot stand idolatry. He is a jealous God and wants our lives completely. So, this is not going to be a time where we stand up and circle up and share our idols. This is not a confession time um, publicly because, boy, that would be strange and you'll never come back. But here's what I would like you to do. Here's what I challenge as a church, both somebody in the pew and somebody on the stage. It is time to stop and take a hard look at the dark corners of our lives and say, what idols are we okay with in our lives? What idols, what things have we created to say, you know what? That travel ball is so important to my kid, and we don't need to go to church for six months, it's cool. What idol, what bank account, what retirement plan, what relationship, what dirty secret that we have bouncing around in our hearts right now that we say, yeah, that's me, I know mine. So as we walk into a time of communion, we're going to give you a moment just to look inward, to sweep those dark corners that we all have and say, hey, it's time to cooperate with God. Confess to God what our idols are and beg for forgiveness. Because as we celebrate communion, we celebrate Jesus Christ. We celebrate a Christ that did not wait for us to be perfect to die on the cross. He did not wait for us to get it together to call us sons and daughters. He loved us so much, he just gave us grace as long as we chase after his love. So that's my encouragement today. As we walk out of here, sweep those dark corners and say, you know what, what in my life, what television show, what is it that I need to give up and say, God, I need you on the throne of my life instead of these man-made altars. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.